0: Well, good morning. good morning. All right. Hello. Thanks for doing that. Uh, and we're going to be chapter 38 this morning in Genesis. So if you want to turn there, put your thumb in it. And uh, we're going to pray desperately for help this morning because we, we got a doozer of a passage. Uh, you all will uh, not envy me in a few moments. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that your word is truth. And we believe it and we know it even when it has passages that culturally are far removed from us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us right now to see the truth that lies in in customs and events that that maybe baffle us. May we see uh, your plan. May we see you. May we see what you're doing through these things uh, in in spite of sometimes the awkwardness. Father, may we be willing to learn, to draw out the principles uh, that we find in your word and to figure out how they apply to our lives And may we never grow tired of conforming our lives more and more into the person of Jesus Christ, that we would be active and devoted disciples of His, that people would see us and know that these people have spent time with Jesus, and that that would be evident in us. So, Father, as we go to Your Word now, guide us, uh, speak to us, direct us, help us to understand what You want us to know. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. The title of the message this morning is quite simply, Yikes! Yikes! Because that's about what the passage has several of these sort of yikes moments in it. And I couldn't think of anything else that would capture uh, uh, sort of the subject matter as well as that one word. So that's where we are. That sort of whet your appetite there. Uh, you ever have one of these um, conversations or decisions as you sort of look in the, in the past, in, in the history of your life. And you see how important a pivotal decision or a pivotal conversation was for your life. And maybe even at that time, it felt fairly benign and simple. But as time has gone on, you look back and you realize that was an important moment. you have these? I was thinking about one this past week um, where I went to, I was a sophomore in college at Biola University. I just went to dinner one night and I sat down at a table with some guys that I knew. And one of them, his name was Rick, just asked a fairly simple and innocuous question. Uh, Is anybody looking for a youth internship uh, to do this summer for a summer job? And it was coming to the close of the school year and I hadn't lined up a summer job yet and I thought, you know, that would be kind of interesting. And so I said, hey, I might be, you know, tell me about that. And so we talked about it and I researched it and, and after some time considering I ended up uh, taking the job. It was up in Washington State in Yakima, Washington. And um, so I took that job and it was very instrumental for me personally in terms of God calling me into full-time ministry. And so it was a rich time where I got to know some good people and, and had some good training and, and felt called into ministry through that. I also met a girl while I was doing it, okay, and uh, which was also a great benefit. Uh, Amy at that time was working as a volunteer uh, for the uh, youth ministry. And um, I sincerely just wanted to go to Washington and do my job and then leave and not sort of get involved in a relationship. I had two more years of school. And of course, you know, that which you try to avoid is right there in your face all the time, you know, just begging you to come and talk to her. And and, uh, so we did the I thing for about a whole summer, and then with impeccable timing, I waited until the day before I left to then say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And so we started uh, with that conversation, uh, our relationship, uh, which developed over that year when I went back to school. And then, uh, lo and behold, I felt the Lord calling me back to Yakima. And... uh, And I did the internship again the second year. And uh, uh, so two years of great training and getting to know Amy and and that relationship that developed. And then uh, it also gave me some exposure to another church in town, Westside Baptist. And when I graduated from school, they were looking for a youth pastor. And I thought, wow, I already know the town. Amy lives there. This is of God, right? So I ended up uh, taking the job there, and I worked for four years and... Uh, had some again just a great training opportunity and god continuing to uh, affirm that call on my on my life that that job connected me with with cb northwest which is the association that bethel is a part of along with 200 other churches actually my home church that i grew up in was also uh, in that association although for the south uh, southwest region down in california and so it just felt like home it was a good fit and eventually it led me into contact with this church and the position here. And, and now I've been here almost nine years. Can you believe that? It feels like we just got off the truck sometimes, but, but that's the case. So, so here's what I'm trying to say. I look back over my life and I consider my wife and our three kids and where we live and my love for pastoring and what God has called me to do and what he's, he's trained me through uh, you know, some of these experiences and these other men. And I look back and I think about that question that Rick asked at dinner. Is anybody looking for a youth internship? And I think, yikes, what, what an important, pivotal moment. I can sort of trace all of these things back to this one decision to answer that question. I mean, you know, what if I had gone to the movies or skipped dinner or slept in or something like that? What would have happened? Where would my life be now? Who would I be married to? What would I be doing? Would it, would it be different? I don't know if you can look back over your life and find one of those moments, but if you, if you are aware of one of those, sometimes it can make you feel uh, like sort of the events in your life are very fragile, and uh, you know, who, who knows what might happen. Um, but instead, I, I think Scripture tells us, uh, it gives us some great comfort to let us know that God is in control of these things. Proverbs sixteen nine. It says, in his heart, a man plans his course. But what? But the Lord determines his steps. And so that which we think might be very fragile or, or may not be going the way we intended or our plans may not be working out just right, we find that, in fact, God is in control of these decisions and he has ordered them in such a way uh, that they are not fragile, uh, that they're not um, in jeopardy. And the story that we're looking at this morning uh, also gives us that same truth. Now, I'll be up front with you. This is a bizarre story. Okay, If you've read this, if you know what's coming, you know what I'm talking about, this is a hard one. And there's a lot of cultural distance between us and some of the practices that we find in this story. It is one of the most feared passages in all of Scripture to preach through. And here we are, and here I am, with the opportunity to to try to get through it this morning. To be honest, it seems a little bit of a of a detour it's it's right here in the middle of these joseph narratives which we've been excited to get to just sort of the heartbeat of the book of genesis you sort of work all, work hard all the way to get here and and you're excited about the joseph narratives and then all of a sudden here's judah and tamar and how does this belong in this whole story but again what it confirms to us is how secure the redemptive plan of god is It shows us the security of God's redemptive plan, despite all evidence to the contrary. And in spite of man's contributing efforts of sin and disobedience and rebellion and deception and negligence, all of these things, that God will have His way. He is in control. He will have His way. And He will carry out His redemptive plan just as He intends. It's not as fragile as it might otherwise appear. Remember last week we looked at the brothers of, or the sons of Jacob. These brothers, and we saw that uh, uh, Reuben and some of the others had basically conspired to kill Joseph, the dreamer, the obnoxious kid that ratted them out and was sort of this tattletale and a little too good to be true and too big for his own britches. They wanted to get rid of this guy, so they basically devised this murder plot to get rid of him. And then along the way, Judah saw another opportunity. One of the brothers saw some Midianite merchants that were coming through and thought, aha, we can have a win-win situation here. We can get rid of him and get paid at the same time. Let's sell him off. And so they do that, fabricate a lie, take back this bloody garment to the father to say, see, your son is killed. And that's effectively what they do. And the end of chapter 37 concludes with this. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So we're left with where Joseph is, and then this narrative picks up, and it continues on with the life of Judah, and it almost just seems as though they're going to get away with this. They're going to perpetrate this crime, they're going, to, uh, they're going to sell off their brother, and they're going to get away with it. It seems like sin is not going to get dealt with here. But in fact, as we go into chapter 38, we realize that God, in fact, does take sin very seriously, and that ultimately... It does not go unpunished. Look at verse 1 with me. At that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. There Judah met the daughters of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. Uh, she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son named, and named him Shelah, which really is an unfortunate name for a boy, by the way. Uh, it was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and, named, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Okay, there's our first yikes moment. Many more to follow here. Uh, and we need to understand Judah's decision at the outset here. First of all, his decision to marry a Canaanite woman was again a serious threat to the redemptive plan of God, sort of placing everything in jeopardy again. And isn't it amazing how each person, each patriarch, just from, from one generation to the next, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now his sons Judah here, continue to, to seem to have everything, do everything they can to contravene God's redemptive plan, constantly placing it in jeopardy with their rebellion. And here Judah is leaving the covenant family, and he goes and marries this Canaanite woman, which again sort of puts this tribe in jeopardy for being assimilated into the pagan and cultic culture of the Canaanites. That's what's at risk here. And so he basically, by going off and doing this and leaving the family, is sort of thumbing his nose at God and his covenant plan and just doing what he wants. Okay, So that's, that's essentially what's going on here. And once again, God intervenes. And we see his oldest son, Ur, is just simply, because of his evil, put to death. Now I want to put that in perspective uh, for just a moment here, because the passage doesn't really tell us what evil he has done. But let's consider uh, a contrast between what little we know of Ur and Judah. Let's look at what Judah has done. Judah was involved in some degree, to some degree, in this massacre at Shechem. Remember that when Dinah was uh, was defiled there, and so to some degree he was involved in that. He's also involved in a murder plot to kill off Joseph, and he convinces his brothers to do something different. But he's still involved in the selling off of his own brother uh, for profit, and then going on and. And perpetuating this fraud and telling dad, your son, your beloved son, Joseph, has been killed. This isn't just a passive lie. He brings a garment that's dipped in blood and says, here, father, he's dead. And allows his father just the grief of dealing with that reality without correcting him. And then he goes on and does this other thing of marrying a Canaanite woman. Again, thumbing his nose at God and his covenant and the covenant family and just goes off to do what he wants. And Ur was evil. Not Judah. Judah has done these things and he is not outright judged here. But Ur is. So I don't know what Ur did, but let's just say he was a bad guy and he got what he deserved. And what we learn at the outset here is very simple. That God is not a God to be trifled with. He's a serious God. And he takes sin and he takes righteousness very seriously. Ur is not the only man in scripture that was simply put to death for his evil act. Uh, We're going to find out later on that his brother Onan was also put to death. Uh, As as you read throughout Scripture, you find other men and women. Uh, Uzzah, who was uh, a priest and who was accompanying the Ark of the Covenant while it was being carried along on a cart, when it began to tip out, reached up and touched it and grabbed it, and this was a desecration. And for doing that, he was put to death by the Lord. We have Ananias and Sapphira in uh, the New Testament, in Acts 2, or not Acts 2, but later on in Acts, I think chapter 7, uh, for deceiving the apostles for the gift that they were giving uh, at that time, they're, they're, they're offering, deceiving them about the amount that they were bringing, they were instantly put to death. Uh, and then Ur, and then Onan. We don't get away with sin, sin gets judged. If you think you, have, you are getting away with some secret sin, something's in your life, and you know it's not right, but you're just hanging on to it and managing it, feeling as though you're getting away with it, you be very careful because God judges sin. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their sin is judged in Jesus and killed in Him. He is our scapegoat, which is why we gather together to to sing celebration songs and to worship Him, because He is our Redeemer and He took our punishment. If you haven't placed your, your, your faith in Him and you're continuing on in your sin, you are under a judgment of God, and your sin will be judged. We take God very seriously. He is serious about sin and righteousness. As we go on in this passage, we also find that God takes our family responsibilities very seriously. And if you think that first story was kind of strange, hang in there. This is where it begins to get even more bizarre. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Ona knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Well, you can see we've definitely turned the channel here and Jerry Springer is now on. This is sort of what's going on here. Lots of things we cringe about as we read this. First of all, uh, we hear these instructions that Judah gives to his son Onan, to go and lie with your dead brother's wife and produce offspring for her. Um, Some things we need to understand about this culture so that we can fully appreciate what's going on. First of all, producing an heir was critically important uh, in this culture. And while this exchange, this custom, what is known as leveret marriage, uh, is definitely something that is somewhat uncomfortable, uh, it is in fact a very charitable and a benevolent act in its intent, okay? And I'm going to try to, hopefully I can and show this to you. The society at this time was deeply affected by war and disease and famine and just premature death overall which left behind a lot of widows who lived in a very vulnerable and exposed condition in this in this harsh world in the, at this early time. Uh, and so the way that their culture dealt with this problem, rather than welfare or social security, the system that they devised was what we call leveret marriage. Uh, and you can see uh, historical evidence of this both from the Hittite laws and even from biblical laws. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, it's, uh, it's very well defined as to how it was supposed to work. It is something that's commended in Scripture. Um, the name Leveret comes from the Latin word lever, which means uh, husband's brother. Okay, And and basically the point was that if your brother died and he left a widow behind, uh, that the brother would assume responsibility for that family and would help manage the resources and care for the widow and uh, basically marry her and, and, and take her into his family so that he could help provide that coverage for her. Uh, so again, it was a very benevolent kind of thing. If the deceased man left no descendants, the expectation was that would be that he would marry uh, this childless widow for the purposes of producing offspring so that she wouldn't have to continue in that vulnerable condition but would in fact have a son so that the line could be continued uh, and that she would not um, have that sort of Exposure, and so it was. You see, it was benevolent and charitable, and it was an attempt to uh, protect and to take care of those who would otherwise be exposed to a harsh world. Uh, now, here's the thing: if you were the brother and uh, of a man that had died, and he left behind a widow, and and she didn't have children, uh, and this request was being made of you, you could opt out. Okay, there was a clause for opting out. Uh, but here's what it involved, and De- and actually, Deuteronomy 25. Uh, Starting in verse 5, it describes this. It's a very interesting passage. Uh, You could opt out, but they would have a public ceremony whereby you would be shamed for not taking care of this woman in her vulnerable situation. And and this is what occurred. Uh, She would come and take off your sandal, which doesn't sound so bad, but apparently that was a shaming act. And then secondly, she could spit in your face. Because you have dishonored her and shamed her and left her in a vulnerable situation. So, can you kind of, even though this is uh, culture and customs far removed from us, you can at least appreciate the charitable and benevolent act that this leveret marriage was intended to be. So, the problem emerges not with this custom, but rather Onan's abuse of it. So, he uses this, this custom specifically to take advantage of. Of this woman. So he doesn't go to her to produce offspring as he was supposed to, but he goes to her simply for selfish and sensual pleasure. And that is Onan's sin. He acts selfishly. He used the law for himself for his own pleasure. But in this relationship, he denied uh, this woman, de- denied Tamar, the offspring that this was intended to produce. Lots of people have taken this passage and misused it to speak out about all kinds of things, including contraception and just a whole bunch of stuff. That's not the intent. The intent is to show that he neglected his family responsibilities. He was supposed to provide this for her to help her produce an heir so that she would be taken care of. Instead, he used her for himself. And this was evil in God's sight, and for it, God took his life. We also see that not only was Onan selfish selfish here, but Judah also neglected some of his responsibilities for Tamar. He neglected her immediate and primary care and basically told her, listen, you go and live as a widow in your father's house and essentially sends her uh, away. What you need to understand too is that this is uh, a very clear aspect of negligence uh, for Judah. The reason being, I mean, we look at it and think, well, that just sounds right. Yeah, go live with your family. They should support you, right? She didn't just need immediate support. She needed a long-term plan. That was the, that's why producing an heir was so important. So when he says, go live with your family, he's casting off his responsibilities on someone else. Judah was a man of stature and resource and would have been expected to take care of her. Instead, he sends her away to be someone else's problem. And he doesn't provide for her a long-term plan to take care of what she's really ultimately going to need. And we're also going to see that in the end, even though he makes this promise that he will send for her later on when his son Sheila is older, that in fact was an empty promise. He didn't do it, he didn't make good on it, and in fact it seems like he never intended to. He instead seems to have gotten suspicious about this woman, Tamar. After all, she's been married to two of my sons, and two of them are dead. Am I going to give her to my third? She seems to be a black widow. Why don't you just go home? And that's effectively what he does. And so we see that Judah basically makes an empty promise to her. Well, it's just some application that I think we actually can take from this. Uh, you may not have the responsibility of leverant marriage, okay? Uh, but God's word places a high value in this passage on family responsibilities. And on taking care of each other. And making sure that someone in your family isn't left in a vulnerable or an exposed situation. We have serious responsibilities to take care of for one another and our families. In fact, 1 Timothy says this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The reason being because he has acted in contradiction to the revelation of God that he has been given. And so he's therefore worse than an unbeliever who hasn't even responded to the revelation. God takes family responsibilities seriously. So I'll hear some examples of what that may look like in your life. Maybe you have some parents that are aging, and their needs are now greater than they used to be. It might mean that you spend a lot more time over at the house helping out with chores and things. It might mean that you, yes, build that addition to your house and move mom in. It might mean uh, doing any number of things. It might mean sending some more financial resources from, for your aged parents that are needing increased help. It might mean providing child care for your son and daughter so they can go out on a date. You know, something that my parents do for Amy and I, every year at our anniversary, they send up a check, and they say, we just want you to go out and have dinner together and you know hire a babysitter, or whatever you need. And they do that every year. And I want to tell you, it's an incredible encouragement to us because it's not just about an evening out, but it's a way that they affirm our marriage, and it's a way that they say, we're behind you, and we don't want there to be any obstacle for you guys to continue to have a close and intimate marriage. And so we're, we're just wanting to encourage you in this way. Dads, can I pick on you for a minute? How engaged are you with your kids when you get home? I know, I'll be honest, when I get home, the last thing I want to do is to roll around on the ground and wrestle. I don't want to talk and hear stories. I just honestly want to sit down on the couch and turn on some sports and watch somebody else work and be entertained. And that's what I want to do in my heart of hearts. But what message am I sending to my kids? When dad gets home and they haven't seen me all day and the first thing they see is me glaze over doing something else and not being engaged in their lives. That's how engaged are you in your uh, parenting and your relationships with your kids? Those of you who are single, you may be sitting there saying, hey, thanks a lot for rubbing this whole family thing in my face again. I really appreciate it. You know something I would encourage you? I would encourage you to just adopt a family. Seriously, and just come alongside and say, listen, I want to use my freedom to bless you and to be involved, and I and I need the strength and, and the encouragement that I find in your family in my own life. And just yoke yourself up with that family and be an encouragement and a mutual support uh, to them. Consider what Ruth and Naomi did. Uh, they, they tied themselves together uh, so that they could support one another. Overall, what we see so far is we see certainly that God takes sin and righteousness seriously. We see that he takes family responsibilities seriously. And then finally, in the, the latter portion of this story here, we see that God takes redemption very seriously. Look at Genesis uh, 38, verse 12. Um, After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shuah, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah the, the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then she sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. There we see that this was in fact an empty promise, and she observes it. Okay, verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. "I'll I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said... Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Well, yikes number two, right? Or three, wherever we are, and I've lost count. Uh, essentially, we see here that Tamar takes matters into her own hands, and she disguises herself uh, as a prostitute. Now again, something you have to understand here, this again seems strange, but in fact the custom of Leveret marriage did include the fact that if there wasn't uh, a, a brother of proper age uh, to perform what was required there, that in fact the responsibility could fall to the father uh, of the household. In this case, it would be Judah. Okay? And again, that's a stretch for us uh, culturally and custom-wise. But here's the, here's the salient point. This is what you really need to understand. Tamar is only trying to acquire that which she has a legal right to. According to the custom of the day and, and the way Leverett marriage was, was lined out. She is only trying to acquire what she has a legal right to. And as hard as it is to say and, and, and to, probably to hear, Tamar's actions here actually qualify her as the heroine of this story. There's some lunch conversation for you. Okay, you can kick that around for a little bit. The only thing she really is guilty of here is deception. But her deception is actually an act of loyalty and faith. And as hard as that is to appreciate, she's very similar to Rahab, who in in the same manner deceived as an act of faith and covenant love. And for that, Rahab was commended in Hebrews. And so Tamar's actions here are are similarly acts of of covenant loyalty and faith. Let me try to show you again here. First thing, she's actually loyal to her deceased husband by trying to raise up an heir who will continue on the family line and protect her for the long term. That is an act of loyalty and faith and fidelity, according to the established leveret custom. Secondly, She has not married another Canaanite, but stayed committed to the covenant family that she has married into, not once but twice. Uh, And it's actually her faithfulness that protects the family line. She's a fascinating contrast, actually, with Judah, if you consider here. Judah is running away from the covenant family. In the very first verses, we see him leaving the brothers, going to uh, the Canaanites, and taking a wife from there, placing the covenant line in jeopardy. But in fact, Tamar is one who is running into covenant rather than away from it. She marries into the family and remains faithful and loyal to that family to produce an heir uh, that is to come. And so, she acts more faithfully than Judah does. Again, she does engage in an intimate act with Judah here, but she's actually within her rights according to the Leverett custom to do so. And here's another this one's a little questionable. Again, something to discuss at lunch. Uh, you could argue that she doesn't actually engage in prostitution. Even though that's the deception that she perpetuates here. She doesn't accept any pay. She accepts instead a pledge. And what she takes is, are these, these items from Judah which actually serve as identification markers which she will use strategically very soon. Um. Anyways, it would make for an interesting court case, wouldn't it? The bottom line about Tamar is this, that she risks everything for her right to be a mother in the family of Judah and to carry on the family line and to honor her first husband in doing so. And so in this story, Tamar is actually revealed as more righteous than Judah by his own lips, does he say this. And it's not too hard to believe, actually, because... Judah is another one of our knuckleheads. There's a bunch of them in Genesis. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Don't you love the hypocrisy here? Another stand-up patriarch. Uh, As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah is is exposed, just like a man who's left his driver's license at a brothel. Effectively, that's what's occurring here. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, uh, there were twin twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, "So this is how you have broken out. interesting, broken out there it means uh, the word for that is Perez for which he is named. He was named Perez to break out. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Well, Judah's exposed his his hypocrisy is shown for what it is. his omission to care for her is in fact. Uh, exposed, and we see how pathetic he really is. Judah, in fact, in this story, is more concerned about being loyal and faithful and upstanding to the prostitute than to his own family member and that 's how shameful he is, more loyal to a prostitute than his own daughter in law and if there 's anything to commend Judah for here, there 's only one thing: his finest hour, his finest moment, is simply this: I was wrong. She is more righteous than I. And so he recognizes his sin and does not continue in it. His finest hour is, if we're giving him the benefit of the doubt, true repentance. And actually I would say that the the same is true for us. Your finest hour uh, in life is not your, your hour of greatest honor or privilege. It is the point in time when you recognize in your heart of hearts that you through and through are absolutely a sinner that we are all fallen, that we are broken, that we are not as God intended us to be. The Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Your finest hour is when you recognize that and fall upon the grace of Jesus Christ that your sins can be forgiven and that you would be restored to him in covenant relationship. And so if Judah does anything right, it's that. And overall, what we learned from this last half of the story is that God is serious about redemption. Again, you, we, we hear the story and we think, what did Judah and Tamar have to do with Joseph whatsoever? How does this connect with these narratives? This seems sort of like a detour here. But in fact, it has everything to do with Joseph. Let me show you. First of all, God has given this dream to Joseph, basically communicating to him that the older brothers would serve the younger. Right? And they said, we're not buying it. In fact, we're going to do away with this whole idea by getting rid of you. You're out. We're in. That's how it's going to be. And so they sell him off. And little do they realize that their act of treachery is actually a part of God's redemptive plan. As we're going to see much more later on. Similarly, Judah neglects his covenant family. And he goes off and marries someone from, uh, from the Canaanite culture. Little does he know that this Canaanite uh, woman that he will eventually uh, bring into his family, that, that tomorrow will eventually find her way into his family, will actually be the one that will be more faithful and integral to the covenant than Judah himself. Again, he will be part of God's redemptive plan. Thirdly, the sons of Judah are born. The heirs are born as they were intended to be. And Tamar delivers twins, Perez and Zerah, and though Zerah technically is the older because he emerges first, first it is Perez who is actually born first. And the promise, the covenant promise, the dream that Judah or that uh, Joseph was proclaiming that the younger would serve the older, again bears its way out right here as Perez emerges first, the younger, uh, being uh, or the older serving the younger. And what's fascinating is that we see in Perez that it is actually through his line that King David will be born and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what we see in all of this is that God is sovereignly in control of his redemptive plan, even though it looks like it's in jeopardy and at risk and that they're going to do away with it, that it is secure and that God is in control. And I would say overall this, that God orders even our rebellion even our rebellion to accomplish His sovereign purposes. God is in control, and His uh, redemption, His redemptive plan, is something that He carefully protects and is absolutely secure. The background to this series that we've been using, or uh, as we've been going through Genesis here, uh, contains this this word beginnings, uh, because it is so pertinent in the Book of Genesis. I haven't referred to it a whole lot, but you may have observed this and thought, yeah, that's appropriate because Genesis is, in fact, about the beginnings of this world and where the physical universe came from, right? But the other thing that we see beginning in the book of Genesis is not just the physical universe, but the beginning of God's redemptive plan. From the very early stages, God was weaving in a plan by which men could be brought back to himself uh, in spite of their sin where he would reclaim them as his children, where he would wash them as new creatures, where they would be forgiven. And on the cross, we actually see this redemptive plan culminated in Jesus Christ, and he declares what has begun is finished, because sin and death were dealt with. And Jesus uh, took upon the cross all of our sins, the sins of humanity, and that one instant they would be killed that we would have the opportunity to be made righteous by placing our faith and our trust in him. God is serious about redemption. And his plan of redemption, though seemingly in jeopardy, frequently in the book of Genesis, has been secure. And he has weaved all of these events together to secure salvation for all who would place their faith in him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are many cultures and customs away from what we read here. And yet we do see these three principles that are absolutely pertinent to our life. You are serious about sin and righteousness. You are serious about relationships. You are serious about redemption. Father, I pray that we, this morning, would look into our own lives. If there is sin that prevails, Father, that we would take it seriously as you do. That we would confess it that we would repent of it, that we would fall upon your grace and your forgiveness. That like Judah, our finest hour would be that we repent for who we really are. May we rejoice in the fact that we can find forgiveness and redemption in you. Plans that you have carefully ordered as we see in the example of Tamar here in the family. Your intention is that we would be your children, forgiven and washed clean of all our sin. So, Father, if there's anyone here who has not placed their faith in you and trusted in you as their Savior, that you would speak to their heart now and draw them to yourself, that they would fall upon your mercy and grace and be redeemed. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.